Hello, and welcome to Ask a Physical Therapist on KDNK. I'm your host, Dr. Tannis Kitchener, Doctor of Physical Therapy, and today we have Dr. Caitlin Tybee joining us again, who's also a physical therapist. And today's topic is about patient self-advocacy. So stay tuned in if you want to hear a little bit more about how to vet doctors, how to communicate, and how to get the most out of your visits with them. Perfect. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks so much for joining me. Let's start the conversation with how do you find a provider to begin with? What are your recommendations for just that initial like search for, I've got something going on, let's let's get in to see somebody? Totally. I think it can be really overwhelming for a lot of people. And I know many people will focus initially on, I'm going to go on my insurance website and see who's covered. But if you're beyond that point and you're really searching for someone who is specific to a, a, a concern that you've had for a while or you're looking for someone different, I think a good place to start is honestly just Google of all things. I just caution folks to be mindful that the first few results that pop up when you search for a provider on Google, they're usually paid ads. So you might have to scroll down a little to get past their health grades website Mm -hmm. or one of these other larger review sites. And that's where you're going to find more of the details in my experience of Mm -hmm. someone in your area. Um, And I recommend searching for, so let's say, pelvic pain specialist in Carbondale, Colorado, or within 50 miles of Carbondale, Colorado, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's often a great starting point for me. I don't know if you have uh, other experiences. No, I think that's great. In a community like ours, often you'll get great word of mouth referrals. Totally. If you ask around if somebody, people love to share like, this is the best doctor, go see them. Yes. Um, so that's an option, word of mouth, and obviously a quick search. If you happen to know like some I don't know how all the online algorithms work, but I know they can be a little tricky. And so if you aren't getting anything, if you're looking for pelvic pain specialists, maybe you need to figure out, okay, what kind of doctor treats pelvic pain? And maybe the starting point is gynecologist, and you can try gynecologist who treats pelvic pain. But if that doesn't show up, filter through gynecologists, and then you can look at their bios and their websites, and you might get a decent idea of who to start with. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's true also for orthopedics, for GI. Like, you might not get much searching for who treats Crohn's in, you know, in this county. Mm-hmm. But if you look for general gastroenterology, and then you can pull up the bios of each practitioner, and totally. take, you can get a lot of information from that. Yeah. What I'll often tell people if they're feeling overwhelmed is do a broad search first. If you don't have a word of mouth referral yeah. or, a, or if a provider you're already seeing hasn't given you a recommendation, do a broad search, pick three to five people and start with them. Personally, I'll drop their names in a Google Doc and then I'll go in and find each provider and look, okay, this person's a gynecologist. Does she treat endometriosis? Yeah. This person's a GI specialist. Does he treat Crohn's? And go from there. Right. And if none of those five work out, then I take a next step. But yeah. by limiting it, that makes it less overwhelming. I love it. The next thing that I do is I start to actually pull up the reviews. Yeah. And recognizing that often we don't leave reviews unless we're upset, so that they're usually (laughs) skewed. Yep. Um, And so if I see one or two that are negative experiences that are not very similar in nature, then, you know, I consider it, but I don't necessarily weed that person out just because of that. But I I kind of consider it. And then when I go through their bio, if everything else seems to be lining up, you know, and they take my insurance or I know that I can afford the out-of-pocket pay or whatever it is, Um, then I will look at um, their license. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and see if there's been any official complaints or disciplinary action. And if any of that matches uh, up with the bad reviews or if any of the bad reviews feel like a really big red flag of something that like, okay, that's something that I'm not going to tolerate or I've had this experience with a medical provider before and it was terrible and I want to avoid mm-hmm. that, then I might write them off. But if it's like one or two random things that seem disgruntled, like maybe it was a miscommunication and there's no disciplinary actions taken against this person, then I might still give it a go. Totally. I think it's so individual too to the patient because I think there are plenty of people out there that will that will think, you know, oh, well, this surgeon doesn't have a great bedside manner, but I don't care myself because I just want the best surgeon for this condition. I think that's becoming less accepted in medicine now, thankfully. But there are also other people who, for them, the bedside manner of the practitioner is so important. And they have so many other things going on in their personal history that no matter how good that surgeon is at doing surgery, if they can't do all the other things for them, they're not going to be a good fit. So keeping that in mind when you're looking at reviews and understanding where people might be coming from. And I think we can agree that there's some basic bedside manner things that should happen. Totally. However communication styles are so variable and what we desire. Some clients or patients, some consumers might really appreciate super direct communication from their provider. And that exact same communication might be perceived as being um, very inhumane or or abrasive abrasive by somebody else. And so it's personal. It's so personal. And there's a great research article, like research article about um, the fact it's PT specific, physical therapy specific. Mm -hmm. And they did a bit of an experiment to see who benefits the most. Is it the the patient who has the most rapport with their provider, even if their provider is not providing the most evidence-based medicine? Mm -hmm. Like maybe they're providing a treatment that's been shown to be no better than placebo while another provider is providing a treatment that's shown to give significant better results. But if the rapport is worse with the better um, treatment, the patient actually has less benefit than the person who has better rapport with that person. The therapeutic alliance is so important. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. so that is important. So I do personally read some reviews, but I take them a bit with a grain of salt unless they seem to be adding up to a picture that doesn't look like it's going to be conducive for my Totally. Yeah. And you mentioned, Tannis, um, looking up licenses and then kind of understanding if there's anything poor that's happened in the past on that partition particular provider's license. Can you can you share more about how that works? Yeah, I'd love to. So this was one of my driving factors for doing this episode because I believe it's so important to be an informed consumer in everything, especially your healthcare. In Colorado, you go to Colorado Department of Regulatory Agency. And so it's Colorado DORA, D-O-R-A. I believe it's .org. But you just do a quick Google search and say, Colorado DORA, verify a license mm-hmm. or look up a license. And there will be a link for finding a healthcare provider. And you click on that and you have to scroll down and click what type of provider it is. So physical therapist is on there, chiropractors on there, medical doctors on there. I believe even like estheticians. Yeah. I think massage therapists. There's a whole long list. Veterinarians. Totally. <laughs> so anything that has any any inkling to do with health health and wellness that requires a license in the state, you can look up. So you have to type in the person's first and last name and hit search, and it'll pull up their license when it was initially given and when it expires. And then you can click a link that says, you know, look up any disciplinary actions or complaints. Mm. And when you click that link, um, it'll pull up any disciplinary actions that were officially, like, taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. 
uh, I think it probably has to go through so far of a process for it to actually be registered True. on there yep. for, you know, for public view. But I know of one in particular locally um, who it was eventually dismissed, mm-hmm. I think a year or two later. And that does show up there that, you know, there was a disciplinary action initially. Their license was put on probation and they were given their license yeah. opportunity back. Um, the other thing that I've found historically while looking up a surgeon is I found a complaint against the surgeon. It came up in a Google search from another state. Hmm. So they had, they had no, they had a license in Colorado. They had no disciplinary actions against their license in Colorado. But when I looked at the other state and it, the other state website was different. I just did a search of like, look up medical license in let's say Texas. Mm-hmm. And um, I was able to find the website where you could do, I think you can do it in most states. Yeah. public. Be, it's very similar in my yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, and that person actually had a significant disciplinary action, maybe two in that state. Mm. And so to me, that was like, eh, I think I'm going to pass, move on to somebody else. Totally. Um, based on the complaint I was reading. Some complaints are, you get to decide as a consumer. Mm-hmm. Like, is this, okay, I, I know of one uh, physician locally who had a complaint against the ty- the way that he was documenting. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, it was about documentation and very vague about some potentially inappropriate behavior, but it didn't give enough details for me to make a determination mm-hmm. whether that's a red flag for me or not. But this person was required to do remediation Mm, mm -hmm. and basically be put on probation where they checked his documentation. And for me, maybe that doesn't exclude them from being able to be in alliance with my care if everything else lines up. Totally. But most other disciplinary actions that show up for me are like, eh. Might be a little red flag. It's a little red flag. But you're putting together the whole picture. But I think... Before I start a relationship with a new healthcare provider, and it is a relation, like you're, you're relying on them mm-hmm. to help you with your health. Yeah. They're investing in you and you're investing in them and you're supposed to be working on this together. Um, I vet them. Totally. In this regard. And I always check licenses. I found one whose license had expired like a year ago mm-hmm. and he was unaware. I'm like, okay, that's kind of a, a problem. A problem. <laughs> um, I've I've seen some some things and I particularly do it with surgery. Totally. But I've done it with people. I mean, they're responsible for writing prescriptions that could be very detrimental to you if they exactly. they're not on top of stuff. And I think the I think the moral of this is just that I don't re- know that everyone in the public knows how in depth the process of receiving a license in any given area of medicine yeah. is, how much upkeep we do on it, and how strict the rules are. Yeah. And there's obviously cases in which we are humans and for example Let's say someone has a substance abuse problem. They may have to report that on their license, but then if they go through treatment and rehabilitation and are sober for 10 years, they may be a totally different person than they were yeah. when, that, when that citation occurred. So I think keeping all of these things in, our, in the overall milieu as we, as we evaluate a person is, as a provider is a really important, uh, requires a lot of discernment on our yeah. part as consumers. Yeah, it does. Um, and just a side note, you can also do this for attorneys. Yeah, <laughs> true. It's different. It's not on DORA. I think it's on the Colorado Supreme Court um, Regulatory Committee for Attorneys. I think I have that wrong, but it's something similar to that. Yeah. I unfortunately had a personal experience where I had to do a formal complaint against an attorney, and it turned out I didn't know about this with him. I don't know why I didn't, like, use my same skill set for that. But it turned out he had had he had been Previous on probation complaints. on them in the past, and so I could have avoided this whole situation. We went through a whole situation, and I figured out how to. You can also file a complaint. We did all this, and um, there were some massive repercussions yeah. um, for that. 
And anybody who has a professional license, we really, most of us are so protective of it. So (laughs) protective. Because we worked so hard to get it. And it means we're we're in this profession usually because we believe in helping people. Like we believe in what we're doing. So um, I educate the consumer on this, not to be punitive to any providers out there, but to incorporate the consumer as more of a team so they ideally can pick the best team for them from the get-go. Well, and the p- fact that you're calling uh, calling patients consumers, you're right. In the, especially in the American healthcare system, we are consumers of medicine, and we have a right to vet the provider beforehand because we are paying money out of our pocket, typically, to mm-hmm. see that provider. So I think that's a great way of thinking yeah. about it. So once we have vetted the provider and we're like, yeah, let's let's give it a go. Let's go in for our initial appointment and see if this person can help me. What do you recommend at that point? Uh, This is one of my favorite things to talk to my clients and my patients about because I think the more prepared a person is when they go into an appointment with a provider or specialist, nine times out of ten, the more positive that interaction becomes. And I think that a lot of the situations in which people have negative healthcare experiences, many of them, not all, but many can be avoided by preparation on both sides. Mm -hmm. Just like your provider should be preparing to see you by reviewing your medical notes and any history you've provided, you as the patient, as the consumer, should be preparing as well. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend this, that the approach to this is flexible based on the person's learning style. Personally, I write everything down. I'm a writer. I make Google Docs and I write down what I want to talk about um, to get my ideas on paper. You might be an auditory person. You might want to record a note on your phone. Whatever it is for you, take some time before the appointment and write down the key points that you want to cover with that specialist. It doesn't need to go back to 1979. It needs to be the key points right now Mm -hmm. so that you can enter, you can lead with that. Because as providers, many of us, we really want to listen and we want to help, but we're on very, very limited Mm -hmm. time schedules, particularly our physician colleagues. It's not that they don't want to hear you. It's that they have another patient waiting and they're already 30 minutes behind from the people before you. So the more prepared you are with your key points going in, the more likely you and your provider can get right to the point and Mm -hmm. make sure that you don't lose time circling around the Mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. I think it's really so tricky because you and I have the opportunity to spend more time with people. And we've also seen, like from a holistic standpoint, things that happened 10 years ago that they do matter don't yeah. think are related at all yeah and you've been like trying to address this issue for like four visits and all of a sudden they're like oh yeah by the way I had this one surgery and you're like oh <laughs> don't see that in your surgical history great now we can we can pivot a bit and get more yep so it is like um it's challenging to figure out where to be succinct but that's where your medical provider has a responsibility and an opportunity to give you that intake paperwork ahead of time. And yeah. they should be asking you for everything they want to know. And you fill it in. And then they, and and to be honest, you said they should be prepared before they see you. And that used to be how it was. True. But now I think time constraints are so significant in the medical realm that they are probably looking over it while they're sitting in front of you, which is also fine. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just want to put it out there. If that's happening, as long as they're looking over it, whether that's in front of you or before they see you, don't, I wouldn't be offended by that True. or have that be a red flag. Um where was I going with this? Speaking of rambling. Um, <laughs> so I would say make sure in your intake form ahead of time that you're putting down every single piece of surgical history, whether you think it's okay. pertinent or not. 
Um, I would put down any medications. like medications, supplements. Um, sometimes they want to see dosage. If you can, just put the dosage that way. If it matters to them, you're not going, oh, I don't know. Um, and then you might even, if you're like, oh, I don't think this really captures everything that I want them to know about me or might be important to my case, I would call the office ahead of time and see if there's any way to submit it electronically. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how would you prefer I bring in extra records? Should I print them out and bring them in? Should I have them faxed to you? Should I, can I email them? Should I submit them electronically? That way, if you've got, like, stool samples or breath tests or shots that you've been given or PT notes that you think might be helpful, but the provider, it's going to overwhelm the provider and take up too much of your time for them to get to like the business of what you need that session if you try to talk all about it, but they'll have it in the back pocket if they need it. Exactly. And it helps, it helps them digest the, the content or in the, in the information there right. as well. So that's what I would say. Um, So just to recap, find the best way to provide them extra medical records if they want them beforehand, if you're that person. Um, Or, you know, you can always say, well, I had this done when you're in there. And then they can say, "Okay, I would like that. Have it sent to me. And then you can address it next time you see Mm -hmm. them. That's also totally acceptable. Um, What else as far as the first appointment with a new provider? I think this is a good opportunity to touch on alternative ways of of prepping, whether it's for your first appointment or for subsequent subsequent ones, because there, like I said, there's a lot of different learning styles. And right now, technology and and healthcare are interfacing more and more. And I, as a provider, uh, I'm, I'm trying to utilize technology as much as I can to help my patients. And patients are more interested in it. They want to track things more with wearables or apps. And some of those can be very powerful, especially if you have a really extensive medical history that's overwhelming mm-hmm. and it's hard for you to keep track of. There are apps for tracking your medications, tracking your surgical history. There are apps that are specific to certain conditions. Uh, there's one that I was looking at today that's just for people with endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain. There are ones that are for anybody who has a period for tracking that. So because there are countless apps out there, you can really drill down to what's specific to you. Then we just become, uh, then we just enter the realm of having to vet the app to make sure it's a good one and right. it's usable. But don't discount the power of technology of, to help you manage your history and your interactions with right. providers. Right. I would piggyback on that and say, don't expect the app to do all the work for you. Exactly. Though. Once you have, it does help you, but then you have to figure out how to integrate it and make it a consumable piece of information for your provider. Totally. So whether that means a graph printout or, you know, that has to be done probably ahead of time. And if you're looking at a new app and you have a provider you're already working with for that specialty, you might call the provider's office and say, mm-hmm. hey, do they work with any particular apps? Because they've already done the vetting. Yep. It may or may not be the best one out there, but I guarantee you it'll be better that they know how to use exactly. it and they're willing to work with you on it than you showing up and saying, I've got this great thing. This has happened to me. Totally. Like I've been doing this self-testing, constant monitoring, whatever, and I've got this, and the provider looks at you like, that's cool. I'm not even going to touch that because yeah, I, I don't know, know what to do with it. <laughs> what the reliability is. I don't know how to, how to interpret it. So if it helps you come down to concise like patterns that you can then share with your provider, great. Yep. But I would not expect your provider to know how to manage that. Right. Or to read every single detail. Like, yeah. you, like what you said, you need to have some digestible thing to provide to the, to the clinician. Right. Yep. Right. Um, and then we, we've talked a little bit about bringing like your own advocate if you want. Totally. Yeah. So that could be a family member. It could be a friend. 
Um, but I think it's important to identify why you're bringing them and make it known to them. Like, are, are they supposed to be there to help you take notes? Are they supposed to be there to ask extra questions at mm -hmm. the end if there's time? Are they supposed to be there so that you feel more comfortable physically during an examination? And just identify, okay, this is, this is why I'd like, I'd love for you to go with me and mm -hmm. I'd appreciate it. Um, but just know that it can change the dynamics of your appointment a little bit. And if that person is kind of interjecting and intervening, then you're getting less time one-on-one -on -one with your doctor during that limited time resource. Exactly. But it can also be super valuable, especially if you're going into something that's overwhelming mm -hmm. and you're going to miss some of the information just because you're stressed and that's human nature. Totally. Particularly for people that have any sort of medical trauma or other um, sort of trauma history and tend to freeze in these situations. Mm -hmm. uh, I think having an extra set of ears, whether it's a physical person in the room with you or an audio note on your phone or your relative on on speakerphone mm -hmm. from the other side of the country. In those situations, obviously, you want to ask the provider beforehand and say, do you mind if my daughter listens in from Maryland or whatever yeah. it is? But having some other other set of ears, real or digital, can be huge in helping you digest what you learned later on when absolutely. you're out of the freeze state. Yes, absolutely. And help you implement the plan a little exactly. bit. I've seen that a lot, and I've implemented that myself as well. Do you have anything else to add about the first appointment? I think we covered the, the key points on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable. Okay. And so let's talk a little bit about when to consider second opinions. Mm. Because I do, you and I both work with some folks that have tried PT, and they might be requiring surgery for a variety of reasons. And I see often people will require second opinions for surgical consults in particular. Yeah. So my personal and professional thing is that I don't think it hurts to go into a surgery getting at least two or three opinions before you go into it. Exactly. And it might be that you still go with the first person you saw, but... Um, once you have surgery, you can't undo it. And surgery can be so helpful for so many people, but you want to know that you're with the right team for you. I agree. Yeah. I've even seen this with non-surgical interventions. We we think about surgery right away because, like you said, you can't undo it. It's it's big. It's dramatic in our mind. But I, I think of cases in which um, I think of one particular case, a young woman who was being treated for um, a chronic pelvic condition. And I, I keep going back to that because that's my subspecialty. But this could apply elsewhere. Um, and she was placed on a medication that put her into premature menopause in her 20s. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, it, it, it didn't cause in my knowledge, to my knowledge, long-term effects, but it really affected her life for a good six months. And that was the only option she thought she had because yeah. she didn't know she could ask for other alternatives. So it's just something to think about if you're, you're given a, a recommendation for a medication or something you're concerned about. There's nothing wrong with asking for another opinion for a medication or a lifestyle recommendation, too. If something's not working, then either work with your provider to change it. And it seems like they don't have the tools to, to change, to go outside of what you've already been given. Yep. Then get a second opinion. And I'm always an advocate of being honest with your provider and saying, you know, I would really love somebody, some other eyes on my case. Totally. Um, do you have any recommendations? Yeah. And then see if they have somebody that they be like, oh, I went to this conference with this person. They have this subspecialty. We collaborate really well together. See this person. Yeah. Um, and if the answer is like, no, then, then you start over and mm -hmm. you haven't lost anything. And if they're offended, in my book, that 
red flag. Yeah. Totally. That's sorry. That's not your problem. It's Mm -hmm. the provider's problem because they should be open to collaborating and you getting a second opinion. In fact, I love having a colleague because Mm -hmm. if things aren't quite adding up and I'm like, oh man, what am I missing on this case? Something's just, I've got to be missing a little detail. Talk to a colleague and say, hey, do you mind seeing this person for a session or two and seeing if you pick up on something that we need to tweak? I've done that countless times myself too. Yeah. I think I agree that that's a red flag if someone gets offended when you ask for a second opinion, assuming you, <laughs> you're kind about it. Right, of course. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind is as providers, we want to help at our core. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot as a provider to say, I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I can't help you. So few providers will do that, particularly in this realm in which um, value-based care is coming more into medicine. And if we as a provider don't provide a solution and the patient um, reports poor satisfaction, that comes right back onto us in our yeah. practice. That's a whole other bag, <laughs> bag of worms. But keeping that in mind is that your provider wants to give you something to help. Yeah. And they may only have one or two solutions in their toolbox. But that doesn't mean somebody else doesn't have another option. Right. So remembering that as we're humans, we're going to want to give you something to do. But that's not your only chance. And if you, that's a great point. If you go in kindly and say, hey, I'm thinking about getting a second opinion. One, do you have any recommendations? Two, would you like me to have them forward their notes to you? Yeah. They might actually be relieved yeah, that totally. you're willing to put in some resources, your time at a minimum exactly. to involve somebody else and really get to the bottom of, of things that they can collaborate with, mm-hmm. hopefully. Um, so yes, yes to asking for second opinions. Now that doesn't mean like, shopping around for providers constantly. (laughs) Like you've got to have a goal in mind and be open about things and take your own accountability and ownership as much as possible. Yeah. But it just means like you're not married to a provider to the point where you don't have the opportunity to ask somebody else for guidance. Exactly. Yeah. Or even if we go back to surgery, confirmation of, okay, that provider, they're saying the exact same thing. So I can go into it with just less anxiety knowing this is, this is the way we go. You've gathered two or three data points that all point in the same direction. Exactly. Yep. So what about if something goes, goes wrong? What happens if you go in and you have a, a experience that's bad enough that you feel like you need to escalate and get some help? I think the key point is know that you have that right, and there are places that you can report it. DORA, which you mentioned earlier, is one of the first places to go to file a complaint if you feel like you need to. Um, there are also lots of other options out there, but there is nothing that is preventing you from, as a patient from reporting something, that a concern yeah. that happened. Yeah. I would say, in my mind, DORA is always an option, but to me, it's like the last place, right? Because yeah, it's, it's like the most fine. It's the most significant. I would start initially with the provider's office if you feel like you can, if that because maybe it's a miscommunication. Totally. Um, yeah. And we're human and we learn. Even if we did something wrong, it's helpful to learn what we did wrong so yep. we can do better next time. If that doesn't work, if it's a hospital system, most of them have a patient advocate you can speak with yeah, for a point for conflict resolution to get to a resolution of what's going on to be heard. Um, and then they can do like if there was a mistake made, they can put systems in place to prevent that from happening again to somebody else. Super important. Please talk to the provider so they can prevent future mistakes. Last case scenario is Dora. Yeah, if you feel like it hasn't been resolved and it could cause somebody harm. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, great discussion. Thanks so much for listening to Katie and Kay's Ask a Physical Therapist. I hope you got some benefit out of it today. Join us every fourth Wednesday of the month and also on your podcast platforms. Take care.